the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. Bitcoin or Ethereum? There's a debate in the crypto community as to whether Bitcoin's energy-intensive proof-of-work consensus will win over Ethereum's energy-saving proof-of-stake consensus. Now, if that sounds a little technical, just hang in there. We're going to explain that. Because at the bottom of this is a deeply philosophical question about how one establishes and retains ownership of property and then transfers it. You could say this is the crux of any civilizational advance. Crypto analyst Jason Lowry makes a case recently that resource ownership in prior times was based on proof of power. He who had the bigger guns or the bigger claws took whatever attracted his fancy. This is law of the jungle stuff. Now, that evolved into kings and ultimately courts arbitrating disputes over property ownership. But here's the problem. Anyone in South Africa who's approached the courts against a deep-pocketed adversary such as a bank understands the proof of power principle. The courts will tend to favor the banks and they assume that their assertions are probably true, while the poor individual claiming financial prejudice is probably trying to escape a financial obligation to the bank. Nine times out of ten, the court will side with the bank. That's proof of power. So Bitcoin's proof-of-work concept takes biased judges completely out of the picture, but it uses large amounts of energy doing that. Ethereum's proof-of-stake protocol is far more energy efficient, but is it safe against attack from bad actors? Well, joining me to discuss this is no stranger to the Money with Crypto podcast, Chris Becker, who is Managing Executive of Cyber Banking at TimeBank. Welcome back, Chris. Thanks, Kieran. It's great to be back here with you. First of all, I'm curious to know what TimeBank is doing in terms of cyber banking. And I think the last time you were here, you were with another bank. So tell us what's been going on in your life. I was indeed. I was with a more traditional bank previously, uh, now with TimeBank. TimeBank is, we could say, the, the new kid on the block in the banking space in South Africa. But we've also just launched our second bank in the Philippines, known as GoTimeBank. And... Uh, it's a super exciting place to be because we are the fastest growing bank in, in South Africa, certainly, but also possibly the world if you look at some statistics in the last two years. We launched a couple of years ago and, and just recently surpassed five and a half million customers. And that's after how many years in operation? After around four years. So five and a half million customers. I mean, that, that's almost like Capitech style growth, isn't it? Uh Tremendous growth. I think the move towards digitization through COVID and the lockdown period helped us a lot. I think we're also in the market with, with a very compelling you know, banking proposition. The mission of Time Bank is to leverage the best of the technologies, the modern technologies available in the world right now in order to just build a superior, you know, superior quality banking product and services. But we can now deliver it at scale at a really low cost. And so that's what's so exciting about TimeBank. It's this focus on you know, leveraging the best in-breed technologies available in the world right now, where we are not you know, hampered by legacy technology systems, for example, uh, where we can select the best in order to deliver the best products to customers at an extremely low cost. And so, right, because there are no branches with TimeBank, right? Well, we don't have a, f a physical branch footprint. We've been extremely innovative in that we have kiosks that people can find in pick and pay stores, boxes stores, but also recently we have a, a, have a strategic partnership with the Fushini Group where we also now have kiosks in their stores. The cyber banking segment, which is, is my focus, the business that I 
run at Time Bank is to focus on our sort of purely digital footprint. Uh, and so a customer base who's, who's, who's not even you know, necessarily that keen or motivated to go into a physical store in order to pick up a card, this customer wants to you know, transact with the bank in a purely digital way. And so that's the segment that I've been brought into to run and manage and build, which is very exciting. And then once again, leveraging off of the the technologies that I've been focused on in the last four years in, in order to see how we merge these new technologies that are available in the world that people are very passionate about and interacting with a lot, like crypto assets and, and blockchain technologies and seeing how we can deliver something to our client base on that front too. Maybe we'll come back to the time bank issue, but I want to get into this question I raised at the beginning, Bitcoin versus Ethereum. Now, as you know, in the crypto community, there's a huge debate around this because they're using essentially very different technologies and people may get confused. What is this proof of work? What is this proof of stake? And a very good example uh, that was given to me uh, was, you know, if I ask you to choose a number between one and 100, what number did you come up with? 33. No, that's wrong. Okay, try again. 45. Okay, so the answer is 77. And, but, but I mean, that's essentially what a computer is doing, right? It's, it's uh, these mining computers, these mining nodes are going through and they're trying to solve these mathematical problems using a tremendous amount of electricity on a, a proof of work basis. The proof of stake, which is the Ethereum consensus, that really is now extremely energy efficient. They've dropped the energy consumption by more than 99%. But the question is, is it safe? And, you know, in other words, are they immune from attack? If somebody attacks and gains control of that network, they can steal everything. I'd like to hear your viewpoint on that. Yeah, look, so I think we're getting right into the very technical stuff here. I think when we talk about a technology like Bitcoin versus Ethereum, we have to bear in mind that these are two very different technologies in the sense that the one is a hammer and the other is an axe. They're tools for different things. Uh, you don't use a, a hammer to chop down a tree. <laughs> use an axe to chop down a tree. Similarly, Bitcoin is a sound money technology. In other words, it's the first ever digital commodity or digital good that's provably scarce and does not rely on any central intermediary like a central bank, for example, or a company to manage the scarcity of the coins in the network, for example. And Bitcoin is the best at this. Bitcoin is the, the digital gold standard of uh, sound money, so to speak. Bitcoin uses its security protocol relies on energy consumption in order to, to be secure. What it means is Bitcoin basically converts energy into security for the network. And so for people to kind of think about this conceptually, what that means is the amount of energy that the Bitcoin network consumes is a hindrance for attackers to come into the network and create more coins from nothing. In other words, when people are critical of Bitcoin and they say, well, Bitcoin consumes more than a small country and that's so inefficient, I think they're not getting the point that it's a good thing because you now need to consume so much energy in order to try and you know, maliciously attack this network. And so Bitcoin is extremely unique in the sense in that it's the most secure database on the planet because... It's figured out this proof-of-work protocol, and it converts energy into security. So the costs of attacking Bitcoin are extremely high. Ethereum, however, is a different technology. Ethereum is not setting out to be a sound money to compete with Bitcoin. Ethereum as a, a sort of platform or network or technology 
uses blockchain and crypto economics around a coin known as ETH in order to secure the network, but it achieves it in different ways. So up to quite recently, Ethereum was also being secured by proof of work. In other words, it was converting energy into security for the network. But it's moved away from this to what is known as proof of stake. And, you know, all technical kind of jargon, but how it's changed is it's not converting energy into security anymore. It's actually converting capital staked, or capital deposited in smart contracts, and it creates incentives in order for people not to be malicious actors to the network. So they're two different technologies. So maybe I should also just add, why is Ethereum different? It's not trying to be like Bitcoin. It uses some of the principles and properties of Bitcoin, but makes changes to that in order to essentially create an open source cloud infrastructure, you can think of it as. So in other words, you know, people would be very familiar with an Amazon web service where you need to sign up for an account in order to, and you need to pay you know, a fee to store data in that, that technology, which is ultimately provided by Amazon. Ethereum is a similar, although not precisely the same, similar principles are used where anyone who's a developer can basically deploy lines of code, which are known as smart contracts, in order to build applications on, on top of the Ethereum blockchain. So as a technology, it's very different. One can think of it more as an operating system as as a money, you know, but it has a money that also creates incentives in order to keep it secure. Right. So the currency being ETH and the, the system on which it operates or the technology on which it operates is called the Ethereum blockchain. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that we have to get to, if we're going to talk about money, there, there are certain characteristics about money. Now, Bitcoin, for example, there will only be 21 million coins yes. in issue. So that, that is fixed. That is never going to change. Um, and these things are being mined day in, day out, and every 10 minutes there's new Bitcoin released. Uh, I think it's 6.25 Bitcoin released every 10 minutes into the world. And that's what all these tens of thousands of computers are trying to solve. With Ethereum, now that they've, with the merge, so they've gone from this proof of work and, and to this so proof of stake. And so just to say, so when you were asking me to guess numbers, yeah. that's what the Bitcoin computers are doing. That's They're right. consuming energy to guess these numbers. And once the number's been guessed correctly, you can basically prove to the network that you've done the work to get the correct guess. Because right. there's a probability of guessing it yeah but so to people do that, were wondering earlier where were you going with that yeah okay just to bring it back. okay i didn't close the circle on that one <laughs> uh, but of course to do that you're going to be expending energy, energy electricity yeah. that is what is yes. the big criticism yes. of the bitcoin chain now with ethereum they've gone from that same thing that energy expensive proof of work to proof of stake but also the issuance of eth coins is going to come down quite dramatically, I think from about 4.2% per annum to about 0.2. So it's going to be quite deflationary and one would expect the ETH currency to appreciate in value on that basis. And that's another key difference between the two currencies, if we can call them currencies. Let's call them crypto assets, the coins, ETH versus BTC. BTC has got this perfectly predictable supply curve. So we know exactly at which block in the next few years, the growth of new Bitcoin into the network will halve again. And then in four years, roughly after that, we know exactly in which block the rate of new Bitcoin growth is going to halve again. And so we continue forevermore. It's very predictable. Whereas with ETH, you've got different incentives and trade-offs. There's a different type of technology platform that's attempted to be created here. And so you said, you know, the ETH supply could have come down, may have come down. It's kind of fluctuating at the moment. No one actually quite knows what the policy Broadly, we know what the policy is, but we don't know what the consequence of the policy is going to be an actual supply growth. And so there, once again, these two assets are very different in terms of their supply properties and, and policy characteristics, if I can call these policies. <laughs>
Okay, so I mean, the question is it's quite a deep philosophical one. I started off with this, uh, this kind of philosophical argument about how we've moved from, you know, the jungle, law of the jungle, proof of power, the guy with the biggest guns or the most guns or the biggest claws being able to take whatever he wants and retain custody, a chain of custody, to something a little bit more sophisticated where you've got the god kings who would arbitrate in disputes where property is concerned and the courts. And even, you know, I think you'll agree that the courts are not always seen as fair because the loser is always going to be complaining uh, in these court systems. But here you have something where the outcome is known in advance. We're talking about proof of work here. So the person who does the work is going to get the Bitcoin. He's going to retain that and it's going to be safe. He's going to be able to spend it, transfer it, do whatever he wants. Do you see this as a civilizational advance the way I phrased it? Look, so I I would say I want to make two comments on this proof of power view, which I think is being sort of promoted or advocated by uh, Jason Lowry, and there was a good podcast that he did recently with Preston Pish, I think, where they kind of get into the detail of this. So Jason Lowry's view is is that if you look at nature um, and uh, you see how animals relate to each other, it's very obvious that there's this the power rules the jungle. Now, first comment is humans are not the same as animals. <laughs> we have different ways of of homesteading property and coming to agreement on things, and it's led to the development of what he calls abstract hierarchies and things like courts and god kings, he, he refers to them at. You know, people at the top of the hierarchy who will have outsized influence and power over the distribution of assets, the control of assets and so on. So first point, I don't think we can just compare us with nature. So extrapolating from what he sees in nature and how lions fight with each other over, you know, a carcass, it's not quite the same for humans, firstly. I think the second point that's important here, and I feel that there's a bit of confirmation bias in his analysis, what about the bacteria that can kill a big, strong lion, a very weak thing? Is that more powerful than the lion? <laughs> what about all these insects like butterflies who have these you know, incredible properties that can transform from a caterpillar into something with wings, you know, live for a year and able to propagate and, and transmit those same properties into their offspring? They're not powerful things, but they've, they thrive in nature. So I question this proof of power protocol. Also, the other point that he kind of makes, and I guess people who are listening to this podcast would need to go and kind of understand this argument in order to know what, what I'm talking about. Maybe we'll try and wrap this up into something that kind of makes sense and the differences between proof of work, perhaps some of the shortcomings and compare it to proof of stake as we close this conversation. But I think the other thing that's also important to note is he, for example, talks about animals that become domesticated like dogs. And how useless are these things? Look at the most successful and the most abundant animals on the planet. Things like chickens and cattle and sheep. <laughs> are they powerful? How powerful? How powerful are they? Good point. Right. So I would say the fundamentals and the logic to the, how that case is built around defending proof of work is unsound and flawed. <laughs> okay. So I think from there we can start to perhaps have a you know, a better, more constructive conversation around the differences of okay, proof so of work. Okay, so let's pick it up from that point. A, a proof of work, this is where you're expending energy, you know, brute force energy mm. to try and uh, maintain honesty mm. in the network. Mm. In other words, if somebody hacks or, or, or gains 51% control of the Bitcoin network, 
you would have a response to that, an immediate response to that, and everybody else, they don't want to have that happen. So they're going to invest huge amounts in energy, which mm. is really what we're doing is we're converting energy into wealth. And they're going to beat off the attack. And it's been proven to mm. be the case and is successful mm. at doing that. Mm. There has never been a successful attack mm. on the Bitcoin network. What would you say are the, very briefly, the, you know, the, the benefits and the flaws of the proof of work? In other words, the Bitcoin network. I mean, I think the, the Bitcoin proof of work protocol, the way to reach consensus around which transactions are valid uh, and using proof of work in order to decide which batch of transactions are valid and will become successful is an incredible technological breakthrough. It's led to us as people, you know, figuring out a way to collectively agree on how to keep digital stuff scarce. So in other words, you know, pre-Bitcoin, there was no way for us as humans to decide to keep digital information scarce. They're just like kind of ones and zeros in a database. And proof of work is an essential part in, you know, in that breakthrough. So it's pretty profound in terms of what it's been able to achieve. And converting energy into security for the network does tie this kind of abstract digital ledger back to something real and natural that we encounter in the natural physical world. Okay, so, so that's important. And I think that's why Bitcoin is the best form of digital sound money. It's got no peer. There's nothing that can compete with Bitcoin on this front. I think we're in this debate of proof of work versus proof of stake where it, gets, where it goes astray, uh, the argument is that there's this, this, this belief that energy alone secures this network. But we know at the end of the day that it's humans who run the code. It's humans. And us humans, as Jason Lowry kind of talks to in this podcast, come up with ways to form a hierarchy. And how a hierarchy is formed? What is a hierarchy? Well, a hierarchy is when a group of, peop group of people value something, value certain things, they put that thing at the top of, you know, at the pinnacle. We all look up to that. We all aspire to, you know, be the sort of the role model, ideal human that can, can, can aspire to, you know, you know, be as the value dictates. My English isn't very good yet today. <laughs> but in the Bitcoin community, we value a principle of sound money. Okay. And so the hierarchy that forms within the Bitcoin community is today very focused on preserving these properties of sound money and proof of work is critical to this process right now. But, but people can change their minds. Values can change over time. We have kids, they have kids. In, in 40 years time, are we going to have an influence over the values in the Bitcoin community? If the apex value isn't sound money anymore and it becomes something else, like a more inflationary money, because you'll be economics debates in the future, and the majority of you know, people using Bitcoin start to value more inflationary money, they can all change the code, right? right? And so there you have your abstract hierarchy, which they are being so critical of Ethereum about, hmm. entering the Bitcoin space. And no amount of energy consumption can actually prevent that from happening. So what I think is more important here is that institutions are built by the people in the Bitcoin community in order to ensure that these values that they hold so dearly, so dear, can be 
transmitted and communicated in the future in order to ensure that the energy that Bitcoin consumes keeps securing the values that have been imputed and, and, and imprinted, I guess, and encoded into it. All right. I mean, the, the proof of stake, the, the big argument against proof of stake and against Ethereum is that there's a there's an implicit reliance on the honesty of people who are engaging on the Ethereum network that there will not be a malicious attack. Uh, a malicious attack, the result of that could be anything, I mean, but it could be that you could have all your Ethereum stolen, right? But the point is that there is an, an implicit assumption that the people using will be honest and that it will always remain honest. So we're moving away here from the trustless environment, the promise of being able to transact in a trustless environment. Do you not agree? Certainly. I think... I think that's right. I mean, we, in a way where you have to have high levels of trust in the intermediaries that provide different types of digital and electronic services to you, perhaps in many instances that trust is in the process of breaking down. And Bitcoin is a technology as, you know, was kind of born after many, many failed attempts over the four decades preceding 2009 to come up with a scarce digital bearer kind of electronic money. And and so people can use something like Bitcoin where they don't have to trust an intermediary in order to move Bitcoin from, from me to somebody else, for example. But you still have to trust and understand the technology. And at the end of the day, like I explained, there are still people who have to run the code and there's a community around this. And the values of the community are still going to be important over time. I think what's happening with something like the change that we're going through maybe just to sketch out a sort of mental model of this in people's minds, is we're moving from an environment of of requiring high levels of trust and service providers on the one end and far less levels of trust in humans on the extreme other end. And things like open source protocols on the internet and Bitcoin are certainly on that other far extreme end. So in other words, when people send an email We've come to trust that the simple mail transfer protocol is going to do its job. And, and humans can't change the simple mail transfer protocol. It's too embedded. And so, so you don't need to trust people in order for emails to be sent around. I think Bitcoin fits on the spectrum, on the far you know, extreme, away from having to trust people in order to execute a money transfer. But are we being pragmatic, <laughs> thinking that the whole world is going to move from a place of high reliance and trust on people who they perceive to be competent, skilled at the top of a hierarchy and providing financial services towards the other extreme where you don't have to trust anyone. And I'm not so sure about that. And I think we are still experimenting and innovating with these new technologies to try and figure out whether there aren't trade-offs that the bulk of the population are going to prefer somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. And I would see Ethereum fitting in somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. And I'm not giving people a subjective value judgment of what I think is better than the other one. I'm just trying to kind of be practical and, and describe how I'm seeing the world changing. And I'm saying this is where we're coming from. Are we really that sure that we're going to go to the far other extreme? throughout all of this. Perhaps we do that with a scarce money, but perhaps we don't need that in order to you know, interact with financial services that are more decentralized, that can't be like Bitcoin. One of the things I've noticed in recent months is the number of banks that are entering the blockchain space. They're not on board with cryptos as yet, 
though some are, they're kind of inching their way there, right? Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan Chase, says he thinks crypto is a Ponzi, for example, but he's all behind blockchain. He thinks it's wonderful. And it's almost like the God Kings of old. Is he not attempting to cling to the hierarchy where he's positioned himself at the top of the totem pole and keep everybody back down there where they belong in his way, you know, in his opinion? Where are we heading here? You know, with this, this with the banks, um, they've been hostile. They're softening in some, you know, the edges are getting a little bit warmer. You know, they're starting to embrace the blockchain, but they're not fully on board with crypto yet. Where are we heading with this? Well, you know, no one can be sure of the future because the future is a closed book. But what I will say is that not all banks are the same. JP Morgan is one of the biggest banks and most successful banks of this last generational cycle, the seculum, the last 80 years. And yes, you know, the, the CEO of JP Morgan is, is, is at the top of a hierarchy. And what he's seeing happening out there in the crypto space, for example, uh, is, 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 is very small in his world <laughs> in terms of the operations and the business that he runs. It doesn't really move the needle right now. I think we may also be seeing a classic innovator's dilemma, uh, which is laid out by Clayton Christensen, who's a professor of entrepreneurship, basically, I think at Harvard, where the incumbents at the top of the hierarchy of an old technological paradigm typically don't adapt their business models until it's too late. Maybe that's what's happening here. And you can be very dismissive of these new things. You know, like the Blockbuster story or the Kodak story. You have a laugh at Netflix, you know. Or, oh. or IBM thinking there's absolutely no use <laughs> yeah. for a, oh, for this a is laptop. ridiculous. But, yeah. you know, the idea is interesting. But basically, removing something like Bitcoin from the blockchain to have some kind of blockchain basically neutralizes the benefits of this new technology and innovation. So, yeah, there's an attempt at bringing out some of the benefits of this new technology, but not unleashing the full potential and benefits of it, um, because it just doesn't make sense to an organization like that. So getting back to my first point, not all banks are the same. Some banks, however, are looking at the best available modern technologies in the world to see how they can integrate those into their banking processes and systems in order to position for where the puck is going over the next few decades. And I think banks who are looking at the world like that, as we are a time bank, may have a different approach and perception about these new technologies. And hopefully we will be able to add value to our customer base, not just with these new technologies known as crypto and blockchain, but also all the rest of it. Right. So I see the Reserve Bank told the commercial banks in South Africa, they issued a guidance note saying that they need to lighten up on their hostility to cryptos and that they were probably over-egging the risk involved. But I don't see too much evidence of that happening, the softening, if you like, just yet. Do you agree? Well, I'm not privy to all the conversations within all the banks, but I think the the guidance note that the Reserve Bank would certainly have, you know, fed into decision making levels, you know, at the various banks and, and there may be a softening up. I'm not sure about that. It it may be a possibility. I think that coupled with the financial sector conduct authority's recent declaration of crypto as a financial product, you know, shows banks and traditional you know, financial institutions, 
that all the talk of regulation over the last few years is actually coming to something. It's coming to some legislation. So things are happening here. You can't ignore it anymore. <laughs> it's becoming regulated. I mean, soon the FSCA is going to have a, a crypto asset product cat category under the FISA Act. Yeah, that's a change. <laughs> it's an important change. And so, you know, if things, if the perception around this new technology and these assets in particular hasn't changed in the last while, I think these regulations may may shift the mood slight, slightly. Do you think this is going to be, I'm talking about the FSCA now categorizing cryptos as a financial product. Do you think that's going to be well received by institutions? Is this kind of the the come on that they've been waiting for to enter this? Because they've been looking at this space with a lot of jealousy. I mean, these are these outsized returns that have been seen and they've missed out on it. Once again, bear in mind, these these organizations are not just a blob. There's, there's different functions, you know, within a financial institutions. Uh, there's the different functions like risk will have a different perception and view over something like crypto compared to, you know, perhaps the business people inside a bank. When you look at the business people, they don't all target and service the same client. So different business units within a bank is going to be targeting a corporate or institutional client. Others will be targeting a retail client. The retail, you know, the person servicing the retail client may have a far more optimistic outlook on on, on servicing their customer with the crypto asset, for example, compared to the corporate or institutional client. What I'm trying to say is, it's not just a monolithic blob, these companies. Within these organizations, there's going to be all sorts of dynamics underway. But I certainly think, you know, having some regulation now will create some momentum to people who have been positive and bullish of, of these assets and wanting to launch product, you know, to give them a bit of regulatory backing in order to proceed. And, of course, now there's a framework within which to to do that. So I think it's important. I think it's important for the space. I think it's it's also important to have this uh, in light of the FATF grey listing that's on the horizon. I think, you know, this is an important development that that brings crypto into the regulatory fold in order to at least, if we don't go into grey listing, to, you know, keep us out of it or to get us out of it more quickly. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that was given by the FSCA for this was obviously to clamp down on the number of scams. You know, South Africa has become infamous worldwide for for scams like Mirror Trading International. And I think that this is, that's one thing. And, and, the, and the other reason, I think the timing of the, the FSCA declaration was really related to the grey listing. They, they wanted to push that through sooner rather than later to try and take some of the sting out of that potential grey listing. Just a final question here, coming back to banking and, and blockchain. One of the big use cases that has been mentioned for blockchain is in areas like payments and remittances, right? This is because the, if you look at the World Bank studies on this, it's 12% is the average cost of sending a small amount of money from South Africa to Kenya, for, for example. Whereas you can do it on blockchain for a fraction of a percent, close to nothing. And if you look at the whole payments network around the world, you know, the SWIFT networks and all the banking networks that, that are there, here you have a the possibility of a technology that can vastly reduce that cost. Is this kind of where you think the attention is going to be in the banking sector with regard to blockchain? I'm going to answer that shortly. I, I just wanted to make another comment on, on what you said about trying to get rid of scams and the like. I think people need to still be mindful that even when there's regulation, 
you know, scams still exist and, and Ponzi's can still exist. And so just having regulation in and of itself, I don't think get rid of that because I think it's a, it's a part of human nature. Perhaps there's some additional checks and, and like legal liability and obligations that service providers would need to comply with. But people should still keep their wits about them and, and pay attention to potential red flags because this technology is still, so, it is still very new. And services being provided on top of it is still very new. And just uh, on and that point, the, you know, liability insurance is not part of the requirement for crypto asset service providers. I think the one big benefit is if you're going to get it pulled into some kind of crypto scheme, is you know, are, are you licensed? Do you have an FSP license? You can ask that question. Sure. And that's, you know, it's another question to ask now. But I would still say it's not a reason to, you know, just dismiss potential red flags or do away with reason <laughs> in assessing yeah. service providers. And that, you know, on your last question uh, around banks and payments, I think we'll have to wait and see. I think, you know, these financial institutions and, and commercial banks are all different in how they position the types of product that makes sense to them offering through to their clients and the types of, you know, use cases they would want to adopt out of blockchain technologies or crypto assets, for example. So it's going to be an on, ongoing process, I guess, of, of, of seeing what, what people do with it. Of course, there's there's been a big move towards uh, issuance of central bank digital currencies. And I, you know, just earlier today, I actually saw a comment from Sunak, who's now the Prime Minister of, of the UK, perhaps it was a couple of months ago, spoke about the introduction of a CBDC. I think there's going to be ongoing focus and effort on, you know, issuance of stable coins, regulatory frameworks around stable coins, because at the end of the day, a stable coin is, is a traditional currency sitting at a bank that's being tokenized or represented on other, another ledger. And so there'll be ongoing focus on, on bringing that back into, into the existing regulatory frameworks. But then the sort of new use case is having a supplement to central bank cash that can be digital. And that's what's known as a central bank digital currency. I wouldn't say it's a done deal that CBDCs are just going to be widely introduced because there are known unknown risks and known known risks around just doing that. What does the monetary transmission mechanism look like when a central bank just introduces a, a digital currency that can go straight into the retail public's hands? Bear in mind... The way that central banks currently issue digital money happens via the banking system. In other words, if a central bank now issues a CBDC, are they going to manage wallets? You know, Will a central bank create a wallet that the retail public are going to use? How is this going to work? <laughs> Who's going to create the wallets? And, is and it going to be the, via the banks? The, the Cantillon effect, of course, is bypassed, isn't it? Because with the way money is issued into the economy at the moment, it goes to the elites. It goes to the banks. And then it ends up inflating asset prices on the stock market and the bond market. And then it filters down to the man in the street. So if you're issuing CBDCs directly to the man in the street into a wallet that is controlled by the central bank, you've effectively bypassed that. I mean, it could be you could say there's good to that, but I think the real problem is, well, is mission creep. Yeah, well, the risk of that is that's what the Zimbabwean central bank did. They basically created banknotes and put it straight into the retail public's hands. And so you could lose control over monetary policy and the transmission mechanism. And like that's a, that's a fact. That's a real risk. <laughs> and so I think there'll be, can I call it progress? I think central banks will proceed 
to investigate and analyze and understand, but it's going to be with caution because there's a done and established way of doing things for, you know, central bank issued money that kind of works and you don't know what you break or mess with if you change that. And so they'll be proceeding with caution, but we may see more talk of, of CBDCs as well. And then, of course, the other interesting thing will be there seems to be a lot of interest still for NFTs, which is just interesting to me. I saw that Reddit just recently sold 40,000 avatar collectibles that were in NFT format. Interestingly, they didn't even tell their customer base that these were the NFTs or that yeah. they were getting a crypto wallet. They sold 40,000 of these things and within 24 hours. Two and a half million Ethereum wallets were created in the process. Reddit customers didn't even know they were creating Ethereum wallets for themselves. Or didn't even know what an NFT was, maybe. Didn't even really know. They're just, they just buying a collectible. But mm. the technology of Ethereum now is securing these NFTs. And it's tradable and it's transferable. And, and, and Twitter, for example, has already made it possible to use an NFT that you own to authenticate that you do own that NFT in a wallet in order to use it as a profile picture. And I also now see that Twitter continues to work on a wallet so that they can enable payments in, over and above just the tips function that they introduced not so long ago, where you can tip people in Bitcoin or ETH um, to start integrating wallets. And once again, it may be that use cases that people think are funny and very gimmicky become the things that lead to more widespread adoption. And I'm not sure necessarily whether it's going to be the payments use case, because you know what? You can pull that card out of your pocket or not even pull the card out of your pocket and just tap your phone on it at a point of sale device and a payment happens. So it's not that clear what the benefits of crypto are in the traditional payments landscape. But what we do know is that you can only buy these, these NFT avatars with crypto as a payment instrument. And so it may be in these use cases in this new economy, people can think of these as new economies, where in Ethereum, for example, there's other assets that you can buy and sell and hold, but the only payment instrument within that economy is ETH, similar to how in the South African economy, the legal tender is around. If you come into South Africa, you ought to buy some rands. If you want to go into these new economies and you want to transact with people in these new economies, you've got to buy some of that crypto. And how can we you know, bridge those gaps into these new economies? And that's where there could be a blind spot to how everybody's thinking about the payments use case and keeping it in the traditional space. It may be in a non-traditional new space. Chris Becker. Managing Executive Cyber Banking at Time Bank. I want to thank you so much for coming into the studio. Thanks, Karen. Thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, hosted by Kieran Ryan. To listen to our other podcasts, go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.